Please remain standing for our second epistle lesson and our sermon text, which is Psalm 149. Again, give your ear to God's word. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word and what it reveals of you and what it reveals of your Son. And we pray that you would be present with us by your Spirit to conform us into the image of your Son, to reveal yourself to us. Please bless the preaching and the hearing of your word now we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously starts with this question, many of you probably know the question and answer, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is two-part, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In other words, the very reason that you were created is to offer God joyful praise. That's the reason that you were made. And it's also the reason that you were redeemed. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says that God chose us, that God adopted us in Christ for the praise of his glorious grace with which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 6. God made us to glorify him and God made us to enjoy him. And that being the case, it's appropriate that the book of Psalms, which begins as you heard in our singing, with a a call to meditate on God's word day and night ends with a collection of Hallel psalms or psalms of praise. The final five psalms in the the book end, sorry, begin and end with the word hallelujah, or as we have rendered in our English versions we just read, praise the Lord. Every single line, in fact, of the final psalm of Psalm 150 has the word praise in it. If you go and look, um, every line has hallel or hallelujah in it. It's as if the book of Psalms is telling us by its very shape that meditating on God's powerful acts in creation and his merciful acts in redemption lead us to unending praise and unending joy. Today we're considering Psalm 149, which focuses on praising God for his redemption. And the psalmist's meditation on This redemption breaks down further into two halves. The first one, praising God for his saving work for us, which is verses 1 through 4. And then the second half, praising God for his judging work through us, which is verses 5 through 9. So verses 1 through 4, God's saving work for us. And then 5 through 9, praising God for his judging work through us. The psalm's central verse, verse 4, 
speaks of God's pleasure in his people and in his saving acts on our behalf as the wellspring of all true joy and all true worship. So let's begin by looking at God's saving work for us. Psalm 149 begins, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. After that opening hallelujah, the psalmist urges the congregation to sing a new song, it says, to the Lord. This call for a new song, as it occurs here and as it occurs elsewhere throughout the scriptures, is, is, is a call for a victory hymn after God's work of salvation, after God's defeat of his enemies on behalf of his people. As you see, other psalms that, that begin with a, a call for a new song, they're victory psalms, uh, meditating on some victory in God's people's past. A new experience of God's salvation calls for new expressions of praise. And there are times that you've experienced this, even if you've grown up in the church your whole life, where God's love for you and his work for you in Christ can become new to you. And becomes, it's almost as if it's real to you for the first time, even if you've grown up hearing about it week after week. Or if you're reading the Bible in your morning or evening devotions, or listening to a sermon, or, or hearing a song, when you're reading the scriptures, that there's a truth that just jumps off the page at you and becomes real for you and new to you that day. In that moment, you're experiencing, excuse me, <laughs> sorry, you're experiencing the work of God and it calls forth new praise almost spontaneously. That's what the psalmist is talking about. It's good and right in those moments, if you have the ability, as I know some of us in the, this congregation do, to compose new music and new songs of praise to God. But all of us have hearts that can compose new praises to the Lord continually if we will take the time to look for his mercies and recount the personal deliverances that he works for us each and every day. Every day when we wake up, we have life and breath in our lungs. We have a house, we have our families, we have food. These are mercies that God gives us each and every day. Take time as you study the scriptures this week daily to meditate on those personal instances where God has brought you salvation, where God has saved you from death, where he has worked in your life, where he has freed you from sin, where he has revealed something new to you. Look for those this week and take time to think back in your life when he has done that for you. This will call forth a new song, a new expression of praise. And this expression of praise, he says in verses 2 and 3, should be in the assembly of the saints. There are many different words throughout the Psalms that refer to God's congregation. But here in Psalm 149, this word used in verse 1 and also in verse 5 and verse 9, if, if you're reading the New King James, it's rendered saints. If you have other versions, it's actually rendered a lot of different ways. Congregation of the godly, the upright. But it's actually all the same word. It's a word built off the Hebrew word for God's covenant love, hesed. The word there is the hesedim, those that are marked by God's covenant faithfulness. As one scholar put it, it is those marked by God's covenant love and in so are devoted to him with a love of the same kind. That's what it means in Psalm 149 to belong to God, to be a saint. 
To belong to God is to be one who is marked out by His eternal covenant care. God makes His love known to us over and over and over again in acts of salvation. and We gather together to praise Him. It's wonderful to offer individual praise to God. We are to meditate on those things, but it's, it's even better to do so assembled with other people who are marked by God's covenant love. The community of God, the community of saints, makes the praise of God all the richer, especially if it's offered in song. You all experience this when we gather weekly to sing praises to God in church. There's something about the voices of many people that stir your heart, that, that make God's praises uh, new and real to you. And there's lots of applications for this, singing our individual praises, but also if it's not part of your normal routine for family worship, to add singing, gathering with the saints in your household, exuberantly singing to the Lord. But I want to commend to you especially, if you do not do so already, setting aside time to get together with other saints, other people in this body to, do, to have no other agenda but to sing the praises of the Lord. I know this is something that, that many of us have, have done regularly in the past and others of us this may be a new idea. But to get together with no other agenda than to sing God's praises from the heart. We've talked recently about practicing our, our songs in the hymnal and, um, and that's good and that's right and, and we need to do that. Um, that's not exactly what I have in mind here. The, the difference between that and what I'm talking about is the difference between uh, like running drills to do layups or something and playing a pickup basketball game. Okay, one of them is, is good and necessary in getting better at singing and learning the songs, and, and that's great. But when you get together to play a pickup basketball game or a soccer game or something like that, you're doing it just for the sheer joy of it. That's what I'm talking about. Getting together with other saints to sing God's praises because God has given us many, many instances of salvation. In verses 2 and 3, the psalmist calls for Israel to be glad in the one who made him and the sons of Zion to be joyful in their king with music and dancing. Everything, as we've learned recently in the book of Romans, owes God praise and gratitude because he made it. He is our maker. But when the psalmist references God as Israel's maker, what he has in mind here is when he brought Israel into existence and established her as a nation by bringing his people out of captivity in Egypt. What the psalmist is doing in these verses is pulling together images from the celebration on the far side of the Red Sea after God had brought his people through the Red Sea on dry land and drowned Pharaoh in his army. Uh, it says that Miriam comes out and leads the people in singing and in dancing with a tambourine. He's pulling together these images in order to call to mind God's great old covenant act of salvation. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on the passage, said this, Let them repeat the triumph of the Red Sea, which was ever the typical glory of Israel. Miriam led the daughters of Israel in the dance when the Lord triumphed gloriously, dancing, singing, and playing on instruments. Let us also give the utmost liberty to our joy. Let us never attempt its suppression, but issue in the terms of this verse a double license for exultation. End quote. 
If the people of Israel had reason to be joyful and glad and sing and dance at the remembrance of their great act of deliverance, and they did, which was merely the type, the shadow of the reality of the salvation that we have experienced in Christ. Surely we, more than any people, have reason for joyful celebration. God saved us in Jesus Christ, not from the hand of a tyrant king, a physical tyrant king and physical slavery, but God sent his son to free us from the slavery of our own sins, bringing us through death, through his resurrection, and freeing us so that we could offer him joyful praise. When Moses goes into Pharaoh's courts to ask for the release of Israel, he tells them that he ought to let God's people go so that they can go into the wilderness and worship him and to praise him. God sent his son to free us from our sins so that we could worship and praise him with glad and joyful hearts. Christians, more than any people, have reason to be glad, reason to be joyful in our maker, in our God. And that's often the sticking point for us, isn't it? How can the Bible command praise? How can the Bible command us to be joyful? Isn't joy, gladness, what the psalmist calls for here in, in Psalm 149, isn't, isn't that something that just comes and goes with our circumstances? C.S. Lewis was troubled by the same thought before he was a believer, and he wrote about it in an essay entitled, A Word About Praising. I have a long quote from it. I want to read you this quote, though. C.S. Lewis says this. As he thought about the Psalms, he began to realize that the whole world rings with praise. He says, quote, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, had strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or giving of honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others deliberately is brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, college, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and sometimes even politicians or scholars. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, is doing what all men do when they speak what they care about. End quote. The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, is doing what all men do when they speak what they care about. Joy, gladness, spontaneous praise of the Lord is the surest sign that we are enjoying God as we ought, that we are enjoying God the way the Westminster Confession says we were made to do. But what if praise doesn't come easily for me? What if when I think about, when I read Psalm 149, when I think about the scriptures, it's kind of blank? Well, verse number four 
is the key to true joy in the Lord, and it's the central verse of the psalm. It says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. You'll notice verse 4 begins with the word for. That is, it gives the reason, the reasons, that the saints should do all of this praising, all of this rejoicing that we've been talking about. One reason is that he beautifies the humble with salvation. God looked upon us when we were not beautiful, when we were not attractive, not pleasing. He saw us in a rebellious and undeserving state, and he loved us anyway with a love that saved us from destruction. All of those who humble themselves and confess their sins and call upon the Lord will be forgiven. God beautifies the humble with salvation. The other is that God takes pleasure in his people. God delights in you. Do you believe that? God delights in you. There are things about you just by virtue of your creation being made in the image of God that God enjoys about you. When God created the world in Genesis 1, over and over and over again, he said, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And in the climax of that creation week is the creation of humans. And he says, it is very good. Genesis 1.31. Yes, we fell into sin and his creation and his image in us was marred. But God saves us and counts us righteous in Christ. And he gives us the Holy Spirit and begins a work of transformation that restores the aspects of our personhood which are delightful to him, pleasing to him, parts of us that he genuinely likes. When I think of this, I can't help but think if, if you're here and you have kids, this is the way that you are with your children. Yes, they sin, and yes, they do things that you rather them not, but you cannot help but enjoy and love your children. God is that way with his children that he has adopted in Christ. Without faith, Hebrews tells us, it's impossible to please God. But hear this, God has given you faith. That's what the book of Ephesians tells us, that we are saved by grace through faith, and this faith is a gift of God. God has given you faith so that you might be counted righteous in Christ and continually grow in pleasing him. Behold, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God delights in you by virtue of your creation and because the infinite loveliness of his Son who has credited his righteousness to you and lives in you by the Spirit. If you know these truths and you meditate on these truths and know them experientially in your bones, not just intellectually on the page, this will completely change your relationship with God. You will experience what Paul talks about in Romans 5, 5, when he says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. That's what I'm praying for you this morning. That's what I'm praying for us as a congregation, that the truths of Psalm 149.4, that God delights in you because he made you, that God delights in you because he redeemed you, 
would be something that you experience as you experience the love of God poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And that that praise would also have an outward dimension. This is what it's talked about in the second half of the psalm as God's people praise Him for their judging work through Him in verses 5 through 9. Verses 5 and 6 say this, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. God's people are pictured as ready for battle, equipped with two mighty weapons. Did you see that? There's two weapons. The high praises of God and a two-edged sword. This is nothing new. Worship and warfare are combined as a theme all throughout Scripture. We might think of Israel marching around Jericho in ceremonial procession and the blowing of the trumpets before winning a battle there. Or we might think of the battle in Second Chronicles where, um, where Israel goes out to battle and puts the singers, the choir, on the front line before winning a decisive victory. So God combines worship and warfare all throughout the Scripture, and the purpose for these two weapons is given in verses 7 through 9. It says, To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. If we're thinking about Psalm 149 as as a meditation on God's redemption, particularly if the psalmist has in mind the meditation of the Red Sea, then these verses recall a literal and physical warfare. As Israel's on the other side of the Red Sea and they're, they're headed towards the land, in front of them is a battle for the conquest of the land. They will literally, um, as you read throughout the Old Testament, bind kings and win battles in the taking of the land. But there's also a spiritual dimension to these verses that's applicable to us. The scriptures consistently tell us that we are likewise in the midst of a battle. This battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against rulers and authorities and the powers of the darkness of this age, against a spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places, as it says in Ephesians 6, 12. The weapons of this warfare, the apostle tells us, are not physical, but instead are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6. A physical double-edged sword will not help in this battle, but we are to continually, as Paul tells us, wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God in Ephesians 6. And we are to do this through prayer and through obedience. It's actually a wonderful play on words with the two-edged sword. It, act, it says in Hebrew that it's, uh, let the, praises, the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-mouthed sword in their hands. Right, so it, even the sword is pictured as praising, as is used uh, to conquer. The spiritual battle that we are in is no less real than the physical battle that typified it. And the principle of combining worship and warfare holds true in our current battle as well. There's a consistent picture in the book of Revelation that worship and praise of God 
in heaven changes things on earth. As we worship and obey God, here and now, his justice is being enacted in the world. It doesn't always seem like God's kingdom is being established, but it is. Psalm 149 was given to us in part to pray so that we would sing it, so that we would pray it, and it would bolster us as we undertake the spiritual battle that we are called to. It is an important model of prayer for Christians, even as we sing our new songs today. But I believe that the primary view of these verses, as the whole um, end of the Psalter is, are eschatological. They're dealing with the end of time. Verses 7 through 9 are a hymn of praise looking forward to God, vindicating his people through the judgment of the wicked. Revelation 19.13 says this, He, that is Jesus, was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, a, a sharp two-edged sword, with which he will strike the nations, and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. What Revelation, what Psalm 149 teaches, is that in some way beyond our present comprehension, God will use his people also in the setting right the wrongs of this present age. The very next chapter in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, says this of the saints in verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. This work of judgment that John talks about is without a doubt the same one written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We need to let Psalm 149 and the anticipation of Christ's future reign on behalf of his people give you strength and comfort and hope here and now in the trials of a life where it doesn't seem like God's kingdom is being established, where it doesn't seem like the rulers of the nations are bowing in submission to him. The Belgic Confession says this is uh, the, the purpose for knowing about the final judgment is so that it would give us hope and so that it would give us comfort. It says this, The consideration of the final judgment is most desirable and comfortable to the righteous because then their full deliverance will be perfected and they shall receive the fruit of their labor. Their innocence shall be known to all and they shall see the terrible vengeance which God will execute on the wicked who cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them. But the faithful will be crowned with glory and honor, and the Son of God will confess their names before his Father and his elect angels, and all tears will be wiped from their eyes. And their cause, which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates, will be known to be called, will be known to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. End quote. This is the purpose of Psalm 149 is to look forward to that in our trials. God, our God, truly is a God of salvation. He saved the nation of Israel repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And today, he is saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation. 
and he is working salvation and fresh revelation of himself in our lives. And as history draws to a close, the Lord will come again from heaven and destroy his enemies and ours, vindicate his people, and wipe every tear from every eye. And his people will share in his glorious victory. What an honor that will be. To all of this, there is only one appropriate word. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Our God and our King, you are our honor and our salvation. We rejoice and pray that your gospel would have free reign in this world, that kings and nobles would be bound with the chains of obedience and discipline and subordination to all of your ways. Grant that we may also be bound to your laws and fix them in our hearts, fix your praises in our mouths, and give us righteousness in our deeds so that we can join in the eternal rest of your saints when you come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. In Jesus' name. Amen.